Welcome back to Forbidden Knowledge News. I'm your host, Chris Matthew. Tonight, my guest is Ian Wilson. Before I bring him on, I want to thank Delete Me. They are a privacy company led by consumer protection, privacy, and identity theft experts. They are passionate about making easy-to-use privacy solutions for everyday people. They are a hands-free subscription service that removes consumers' personal and private information from the leading people search and data broker websites online. Just click the link in the description and check out what they can do for you. And please subscribe to Forbidden Knowledge News on LBRY.com. It's our official backup channel in case YouTube decides to just give us the boot one day. And if you've made a donation, I want to thank you so much. Everything that you guys have done has helped so much. Any, any donations you've made uh, it is so much appreciated. And if you would like to make a donation, those links are still in the description. Tonight, I want to welcome Ian Wilson. He has been recognized as a pioneer in the field of lucid dreaming by some of the leading researchers on dream exploration. He has freely contributed articles, books, papers to the dreaming community since 1995 and has helped hundreds of people become better dreamers. As an artist, software engineer, and avid lucid dreamer spanning 33 years, he has everything to offer with regards to teaching his skill. Ian, welcome. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing wonderful. How are you doing, Chris? I'm doing very good. Thank you so much for coming on. I personally believe that our dreams are very important and more significant to our waking world than most people even realize. I'm very interested in lucid dreaming or being able to even control your dreams. But like many people, I have trouble even remembering my dreams. Uh, yeah, but luckily, we have folks like yourself here to help us understand our dreams and, and even learn how to lucid dream and create our own dream reality, if you want to call it. Uh, first, I'd love to hear what got you interested and started, um, you know, lucid dreaming and, and interested in dreams in general. Um, well, I, I lucked out because when I was eight years old, I watched a movie called Star Wars, and I think we're all familiar with that. And that was some 40 years ago. And, um, you know, as a little boy, I always wanted to be in the movies. I didn't want to just watch it on a 2D screen, but we didn't have VR. We didn't have the stuff that we have today. So as a kid, you have imagination, right? But um, I lucked out because I went to bed one night after watching the show, and I closed my eyes. And when we go to sleep, we shift from our waking state, and our focus shifts into the dream state. And as that happens, we go through a state known as hypnagogia or REM replay is what I call it. And what happens is we start to see things from the day kind of emerge as the dream emerges. It becomes visual and eventually audible and then it becomes a dream, right? So as a kid, I was seeing Star Wars kind of playing in high fidelity graphics in my mind. And I was like, wow, this is like the movie. And the next thing I fall asleep and I have a dream that's an interactive replay of Star Wars where I'm now in this 3D environment that dreams offer. And it was interactive and it was like exactly what I wished for. So I woke up and I was just like, I didn't know any of it back then. I just knew that somehow... I wishing and wanting to do that and paying attention to whatever it was. Um, so I started exploring that just by watching cartoons and fun things that I love to go to sleep. And I would think about it and I started to see it become visual as I was falling asleep. And the next thing I know, I'd have a dream about it. So when I was young, from eight all the way up to about 15, I was having basically dreams, not all, of course, but they were based on influences from our waking life. And it's, you know, we all know, like, say, people who have a friend, you want to watch a horror movie, and they'll say, what? No, I don't want to watch it. It's going to give me nightmares. So we know things from our waking life will come back and replay in our dreams. Um, so why not tap into that, right? That's the first step of active dreaming. So I've kind of been into active dreaming since I was eight. But then I got into the lucid dreaming, thankfully, um, by coming across an Omni magazine written by Dr. Stefan LeBurge. And he's been around for a very long time. And he's one of the pioneers in lucid dreaming. 
um, a lot of the uh, things that are out on the internet are actually derivatives of his work. Um, so he founded the Lucidity Institute and I got very lucky in an Omni magazine wrote an article called Power Trips Controlling Your Dreams. I was 15 at the time, that was back in 1987. And he talked about being self-aware or conscious in your dreams. So lucid dreaming is what we know that to be. And uh, yeah, I mean like, geez, my dreams are pretty darn amazing to begin with. So I thought I haven't done that yet. So how can I do that? And he didn't give a lot of instruction. So, um, but I was so thrilled by the idea that it could be done. Um, it just happened. It happened naturally. And I, about two days later, I had my first lucid dream and it was just like waking up, like being in a totally interactive reality. Cause now the fidelity of the dream, the interactive nature of it was just like being awake. So it was like amazing. And so what did I do? I flew, you know, I had fun. So that woke me up and I said, okay, I'm never going to stop dreaming this way again. That was like having a second life experience. And so because I didn't have any books at the time or anything like that, I had to really slug it out on my own. But I noticed that um, things I could do in my day was improving my dream content. So I just went on and started doing a lot of self-exploration to improve my dream quality because there was things that I call noise, like I couldn't read in my dreams, things sometimes would be hallucinatory. And so um, I started working with awareness during the day while I was at school and just kept cleaning it up, cleaning up house until it got really good. So I've been doing it almost every night for 33 years and it's been a blast. That's a lot of time spent in the dream time. That sounds very cool. Now, from your perspective, why to redream and kind of define, you know, what it is that we're doing when we're dreaming? Is it our, our brain just processing our day uh, or can we access, actually access realms outside of ourselves or is it a different type of reality? What is the best way that you can describe what we're, we're doing when we're dreaming? Sure. Well, there's a big, broad range of things that happen with dreaming. Remember, it's not exclusive to humans because every mammal with a brain dreams and some birds dream. So dreaming is a part of information processing that takes part. If we look at it from a neuroscientific perspective, it's part of our cognitive development. That's why a lot of children are growing up dream a lot more than when they become an adult, when their brain hardens, when we see a massive decline in dream recall and those kind of things. And the reason for it, because dreams with... Um, a big part of it is memory replay. So yes, from our waking life, our mind has to consolidate experience into long-term memory. And our dreams present what-if scenarios for us to do things like problem solve, work with creativity, and all these things are helping the mind kind of map out and learn, right? So it does serve a role in long-term memory consolidation. We call that replay. We have episodic, semantic, spatial, and sensory replay. But there's other things in the dream experience when you start getting into the semantic part, which can be very creative. Um, we know that not everything we're going to dream is going to be derived from our waking life. Some of that can be from our belief systems. So if we have a certain way of believing about certain things, um, if you think about the dream experience as a, just a canvas, you close your eyes, you've got a blank canvas, and what are you going to paint that with? That's going to be your thoughts and your experiences from your waking life and also what describes you as a person and your personality. So in that, you can have a big broad range of the dream experience. And so we know that people bring in their religious practices, their spiritual practices, their occult practices. And that's all a very cultural human thing to do. Dogs and cats don't do it and whales don't do it. But there is certainly information that we are parsing in that state that can be quite interesting and uh, self-edifying, you know, that you can have epiphanies that otherwise your mind while you're awake, there's just too much noise. You're under the pressure of anxiety and stress and you're not having that clarity you know, and that's where things like problem solving and insights can come in from yourself. So, you know, it's a, it's a very vast part of us. You know, they call it the inner cosmos. Like Oneironauts are always exploring their inner cosmos. And I definitely would say it's like having a second reality to parse an experience that can be as real, if not even more real than your waking life, depending on how good you are at it. 
sorry, I was muted there. Uh, do you believe that we actually have this uh, collective type of consciousness and that we can actually interact with that in our dream states? Yeah, and that kind of derives itself from Carl Jung's work, right? So when Carl was working with his patients, he was noticing that there were archetypes from people that would have same dream patterns or themes but they'd be from different parts of the world, which he couldn't explain because one of the senses with dreaming is that it's subjective. Uh, so why would they be having similar things emerge in the dream content? But, you know, that again is an issue of, you know, some people will say yes and some people will say no. Um, but, uh, you know, for myself, yeah, there's definitely something in that, you know, that there's some information that seems to be there that kind of connects us to something else or some other. I mean, there's, you know, I mean, people can have deja vu linked to dreams, for example, you know, you have a deja vu and you have an experience that's completely brand new. You've never been there before. And all of a sudden you're wondering, well, where did this come from? But you get this amnesic trigger and you kind of remember, did I dream this? Or some people get more into that. So there's that kind of link there. But of course, right now, there's not a lot of, um, you know, people that would accept that. But, you know, I've had that experience. I know a lot of people that have had that experience. And that's an interesting part of that, <clears throat> considering everything that we dream is happening in the brain. We see the um, research that is done on it. A lot of it comes back down to the hippocampus. And I know there's been some studies that look at the possibility of, you know, place cells and time cells and patterning it was done in mice that were showing that the mice somehow seemed to have a pattern that would form in the hippocampus that would link to something that they would do later on in the day. So, you know, there is some potential scientific evidence that could link that further, but it's pretty much a area that's gray for a lot of uh, academics and things like that. But it's something that I think is uh, interesting because you'll know if you had it. When you have a direct experience, you had it and there you go. Right. Now you mentioned deja vu um, and I've had a lot of deja vu experiences that seem somehow linked to, to my dreams in some way. Uh, could you talk a little bit more about that and how, how it's linked to, to dream? Um, well, that's a very, you know, deep part of the dreaming experience. But I mean, when you have a deja vu linked to a dream, it can come in a lot of different formats. Like most people will have amnesic uh, relationship with that because the vast majority of people simply don't engage their dreams. So we have three to five each night. Doesn't mean everyone knows how to. And, uh, the other problem with dreaming is it's a trophic. So without stimulation or development, if you don't remember your dreams or make an effort, we actually develop neural pathways and neurons that are processing that information. And, and if we don't, it goes into stunted development. So you'll stop remembering dreams of maybe one a week or one a month or never again. So of course, most people are amnesic when it comes to the dreaming practice. And um, But when you start to have more time there and more information to parse, that'll start to surface a little bit more. And, you know, it comes in various formats as well from symbolic you know, where um, it can be characters in the dream, but not exactly the setting, but then you may have never met that character. And all of a sudden you go, wait a second, that's that person from that symbolic dream. And then it can also be literal where it's just like this conversation right now. And it can be third person, you know? Um, so there's some interesting stuff that's there with that particular thing as to why that is. I mean, you know, that's, uh, I guess it goes deeper down the rabbit hole. <laughs> Yeah, and I mentioned in my, my intro, and you talked about just now how pe people don't remember their dreams. I remember when I was a kid, I used to remember my dreams all the time. It That's seemed right. like it seemed like it would be a lot easier. So what happened to us? Why, why don't we re remember dreams anymore? Well, the thing is, like any skill or any, you know, like if you, if you take a child and you don't give a child language to learn as they're developing, we are developing neural pathways as we grow up until about the age of 25. And what happens is every single route of neural pathways that are growing in the brain uh, reach peak capacity in the brain hardens. So 
um, if a child hasn't been around language and isn't being stimulated for language, the network of neural pathways to facilitate language doesn't develop properly. So if they get reintroduced after the brain hardens and then starts to learn language, they'll never learn it fluently again. So dreams being a developmental skill, you know, because we develop neurologically for that. We know that when we do fMRI studies on things like memory, which is in the medial prefrontal cortex, we'll see people that have dream recall have a higher density of neural pathways than the people that don't. So right there is a big indicator that we see cognitive development in the brain that facilitates the dream experience. Um, and most people, because they're not getting that stimulation, most people don't wake up and go, I'm gonna remember my dreams. They just wake up and they go about their day and the dream memory isn't gonna be there to stimulate those neural pathways and it just doesn't develop, you know, it goes into atrophy. So most people stunt their dream development by not participating in the three to five they have. Not yeah. putting a priority or a value in the experience and uh, for sure it's gonna affect you in the long run. By the time people reach 60, their ability to recall a dream is reduced by 99.98%. I definitely want to talk about how uh, people can improve that later in the show. Uh, but I'm wondering if you could tell us what's the difference between uh, lucid dreaming, meditating, and an out-of-body experience. I know they're all kind of connected in some way, and, and you've dealt with all of these. So could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, meditation... It depends on what practice that you're doing with meditation. A lot of times people are trying to get rid of rumoration and that's just all your noisy thoughts to bring your mind calm and still. And also if you do meditative practice, you can actually start to see things that you would get in the dreaming practice, like observing visual information, hypnagogic patterns, those kind of things can emerge through meditation. Um, because when the mind starts to get that relaxed, it starts to focus on other bands of information. And you know, that's what our brain does, it parses data. So it, it'll start processing information that comes from another focus state, right? So you know, the outer body again is, you know, like that's a, big, a very big field too, because um, I have a completely different look at what that is versus what we have here and most of the information that we have here. Uh, but the out-of-body experience and the dream state are both similar in the fact that we are rendering information that yields an experience. But as far as the, uh, you know, if we want to go really, really deep is that, um, you know, we're not actually going out of body in that context that we think, um, but we're actually, if you get really deep into what you are, we're projecting our awareness or interfacing our awareness into the body. And now we're just kind of stepping back from that focal focus point. So, you know, it's... Uh, the outer body is really kind of an interesting inversion. But that's uh, so. When I look at the outer body experience, I mean, I've done it quite a bit when I was younger, and uh, I got to the point where I realized I was actually projecting my awareness from basically a conscious singularity or non-locality into the information that described my body. So the body was just an interface. So that's very interesting, and it makes me think more and more of the the simulation theory, uh, how we can you know access different information just from our conscious states. And uh, that, you know, life is or our whole reality is in, in a way, some sort of some simulated reality. What are your, your thoughts on that? Yeah, so when we get into simulation theory, well, we do know one thing about reality is that it emerges from information processing in the body. So we observe sensory data from the objective world and our mind processes that information and it creates a interface to reality, right? So everyone experiences a subjective paradox. So even though there's objective reality, uh, everyone, even, you know, like it's just obvious. I mean, cats, dogs, bees will all perceive reality, the same reality, but differently through this vehicle of perception, right? So, you know, we all fundamentally have evolved with information, you know, because without information, we'd die. Close your eyes, you're not getting visual information. We'll try navigating through life with that. Suddenly having that happen, it'll be very difficult. So we rely on information and the processing of information 
uh, to exist. I mean, even a amoeba is processing information, albeit not the same as we do, but enough so it can sense changes in temperature and find food. Um, so it also produces information that's very fundamental to life. So information processing in living systems is a very interesting thing that happens in all life because um, without it, you know, it wouldn't be able to adapt to its environment and be able to survive. So, you know, is our reality information? One way of looking at it is yes, it is. I mean, look at quantum mechanics and we get into things like the double slit experiment where matter can be either a wave function or probability distribution or when measured, it becomes a particle, right? So um, perhaps the part of probability distribution that they're looking at is information that's sort of like the um, data stream, right? That is then parsed and rendered into a particle when that information is now being accessed. So that's uh, sort of a tie in there for the idea that reality is information. It's, uh, you know, something that I think is emerging on the world stage. I mean, look at Elon Musk, he's kind of moved down that rabbit hole. And uh, I think even Joe Rogan's taking that a little bit more interestingly serious. But um, regardless of the fact if it's a virtual reality or a simulation, um, we're a part of that. We're the observer in that. And we're having an impact on that information every day of whether we're conscious of it or not. Do you think that uh, improving on remembering your, your dreams uh, and, and kind of uh, working with your dream state could improve your waking state and understanding Certainly. what's going on around your reality? Yeah, well, I noticed, um, so I do have some courses that I've developed. It's taken me a long time. I started my first program back in 1998. And this current program that I have, I wrapped it up into a little bit more fun for people. But it does deal with improving things like stunted dream development with memory. That's the first thing to go. So my first course unit is strictly dealing with stimulating memory back. You know, a lot of dream practitioners say, well, just write down in a journal and that's going to kind of help. But um, in my practice, I noticed that reviewing the dream with your eyes closed when you wake up in the same manner that you start observing the dream emerge, we call that, you know, I call it uh, the REM replay or sensory replay con uh, construction. That's going to provide more stimulation rather than just getting up and just trying to faintly remember. So that's one of the things that we kind of work with this memory stimulation for dreaming. And uh, it definitely works in the students that have had maybe one dream a week suddenly start by the end of the course noticing two to three. And as you progress further, some are getting up to seven dreams a night. So we work with stimulation because that's what the brain needs. It's not being stimulated, it's not developing. So uh, the other thing is perception. So you go into a dream, now you've got your memory starting to work and now you notice you can't taste, touch or smell. Uh oh, what's going on there, right? Because that sensory replay part of the dream package should be five senses. It should be taste, touch, smell, vision and hearing. So same thing, we work with stimulation training during the day to provide the information, the stimulus for the dream experience, review that during the falling asleep stage and then you know, um, for example, I had a student, she was big into a lot of the Jungian, Freudian, dreaming for information kind of movement that a lot of people got into. And it's been very active with dreaming for 30 years, but hadn't come across information on things like dream fidelity, improving dream quality with things like stimulation for her senses. And she started training for, because she never had touch, taste or smell. So for 30 years it was audible visual dreaming. And then for the first time she started getting tactile feedback in her dreams, which she loved. And then next thing you know, she about a week later had taste no, that's nice. And then a week later, smell. So it takes a while to bring it back online. That's three weeks of, you know, her training herself. I just provide the toolkit. I consider my work like the gym for the mind. Either you go to the gym and you see the workout machines and start exercising or you don't. <laughs> that's amazing that you yeah. can actually have the sense of touch, taste and smell. It's like a, it's like a completely yeah, you different have reality. That. That you want to have that. It's a rich dream experience. That's where it becomes the second life. And she's not the only student. Like you can go to the course and see the comments from people that have taken it that have had uh, improved. Um, but they also know during the day because what we do know from 
studying dreaming is that the brain repurposes itself from dreaming, obviously. So your visual aspect of the dream um, is going to have it in the occipital load. It's not going to happen somewhere else in the brain, right? So it's not, um, it's for efficiency. So the brain reuses the same parts of the brain for our senses. And we know this from brain injury studies and things like that that have been done on dreams. People that have had lesions and things in the sensory regions of the brain where they no longer have it in their waking life, it can go offline in their dream life. And in fact, some brain damage completely shut down the dreaming experience altogether. Um, so, you know, understanding that dreams are a neurological and developmental thing is very important. It's overlooked a lot by a lot of people that do uh, teach it. So, you know, same thing, you know, when you go into that experience and you start having memory, now you start getting sensory perception. Well, the last is awareness, right? And this is a big thing for a lot of people and they wanna have self-awareness because right now we're self-aware and what does that give us? We have a sense of time, we know that we're here and we can have choice. But <clears throat> if we don't have that in a dream, we're at the wildness of the subconscious mind. We just go with that consciousness dream. We won't know that we're dreaming, it'll appear real and people get caught in that illusion. So a lot of the old practice for dreaming is reality checks to try to break out of that trance-like state that we naturally go into. But we're only naturally going into it because we're not trained. Let's say we haven't trained ourselves to be self-aware. So we do the same thing with self-awareness training. We do it through stimulation, not through uh, what I call inventive gimmicks. You know, inventive gimmicks is like putting a crystal under your pillow, thinking that's gonna help you have a lucid dream or dangling some treatments or maybe putting salt around or getting into sort of a practice that isn't gonna stimulate the brain. That's not gonna help that deficiency or that atrophy that's there. So we address it with um, cognitive training during the day. We look at things like, for example, the same student she had never read in her dreams. It was a problem I encountered a long time ago. She started working with stimulation training for reading and now she reads in her dreams and she couldn't believe that she could do it. She was amazed when it started to emerge. So you can start working with your logical faculties and your cognitive, you know, because all happens in the prefrontal cortex. We see it in the fMRI studies. And yeah, you want to have as much of your intellect engaged in that process. A lot of people think about shutting that intellect down, but I think it's very important. You know, our intellect both here and both there becomes very vital because when you're there, a lot of people have a lucid dream. What do you do now? Okay, what's your first lucid dream? If you can't think and you can't act on choice and you can't bring your intention forward, well, you, you know, you're kind of still at the mercy of the, uh, the experience. So there's a lot of um, skill involved in that. Now, have you ever had a, a shared dream or is that possible to, to actually, ha uh, you know, enter someone else's dream or share someone else's dream in that way? Yeah, I mean, that's... Things like that have kind of bubbled up in my experiences with certain friends and family and I've been around other people at work where, you know, there was actually three people and I was working at a particular uh, place at a concession, you know, was at a movie theater and they were talking about a dream and uh, they were all sharing the same dream content and what's interesting about some dreams that they're so symbolic for them, they're all sitting at this very large exaggerated table, like an outdoor picnic table and it had all of these inscriptions written on the top and they were all describing it all to each other and all very shocked that, hey, we're all in the same places and stuff like that. So that does surface as well. I mean, um, you get into some of the people that have looked into that, like, like Linda Elaine Magellan, she wrote a book called Mutual Dreaming. Um, so that does surface in people's experiences and it is very interesting. It's surfaced in mine as well, but that's a hard thing to, you know, validate because we don't have a way of measuring internal dream information yet, although they're working on that in Japan where they are starting to use fMRI and artificial intelligence to start to deconstruct how the brain is forming images that may actually lead to externalizing dream content. And I think that'll be an amazing, um, eye-opener for a lot of people because now what was subjective could be objective, whether that's ethically right or not. Trust me, they're working on it. Now, I've had guests on that have uh, claimed to 
during their dream states uh, have interactions with uh, other intelligences or consciousness. Has, is this something you've ever experienced? Have you ever interacted with something that you think is definitely outside of yourself or um, a, a different type of intelligence? Yeah, I mean, that will come. I mean, when you look at a lot of the things that we do in our dreams, you'll find, you know, that the characters that we'll encounter as dream characters seem to act on their own intelligence. Like, it's uh, it's an interesting thing. So you can engage in role play with them, and they'll just be, like, talking to you and me at the same time. Like, they seem to have their own life, their own intelligence. But um, if you go deeper into that particular band, uh, we start getting a little bit out of the uh, the dreaming part of it. Yeah, you get into... You know, for example, people that encounter the being of light, you know, that kind of thing will come up quite often. Um, they'll start getting into these deeper layers and come across something that's very knowledgeable about them, very knowledgeable about a lot of things. <clears throat> so, you know, there's that particular element in that experience, but that starts getting into a lot of the deeper, deeper parts. And of course, I've encountered that. So, you know, the being of light thing has definitely been something that has come across my table more than once. <laughs> Could you talk a little bit more about that? That's fascinating because, you know, I've had a meditative uh, experience where I've come into contact with something that seemed intelligent. Um, so what, what, what type of being of light uh, have, have you experienced? Well, that's another deep part of the rabbit hole. But um, so the being of light, uh, it's very complicated because it's actually an aspect of yourself. It's kind of like we talk about, you know, if you look at what we're doing here in the human experience, gathering all these experiences, the intensity, the enduring nature, uh, it has an evolutionary quality that um, is taking us to this end game of our evolutionary path where we go from, well, I have to reveal a lot of secrets on this one. So when we start here, we're not necessarily that, we're kind of like very dimly lit, you know, um, fragments of something bigger. And through this, going through what we're doing here, the pressure, like I'll put it this way, coal doesn't become a diamond without pressure, right? So we don't evolve if we don't have a certain amount of pressure. And so that being of light quite often you'll find is just yourself. And a lot of people that go deep into that practice, a lot of people will first because of cultural belief here will think it's God and go, ooh, I'm talking to God because it's intelligent. And it'll play with you in that regards until you're ready to find out that it was actually just uh, kind of like your higher self. Yeah, that's what I was just about to say. So what some people would call their higher self. Yeah. yeah. So that's the part of you that sits outside of the system. You know, that is kind of projecting its awareness into you, you know. That is very, very interesting. Fascinating stuff. Now tell us about uh, Dreaming for Gamers and, you know, how this came about. Well, you know, I mean, I go to, I have two websites. So Dreaming for Gamers is kind of like the mouth of the rabbit hole for a lot of people. So it's completely void of all the you know, the mysticism or these kind of things, because a lot of people just aren't ready for that kind of experience because they can barely have a dream. You know, a lot of people suffer from stunted dream development. So um, a big part of my dreaming practice is just to have some fun, blow some steam and be artistic about it because I am an artist. So I enjoy, um, you know, just creating things. You know, dreaming is a creative process. So, you know, we have a lot of experiences here that, you know, if you look at it as paint for your dreams, you know, like, what would you like to dream tonight? How can you go about having an active dream? Well, as an artist, if you ever get into studying art, well, you kind of sometimes need source material or reference to get started, you know? So that's the first thing that I thought, you know, I'm going to revamp my entire dreaming practice and make it completely based on skill alone. Here's the canvas of your mind when you close your eyes. How do you paint that canvas? So, you know, I thought it'd be fun when I was doing a revamp of my course to make it um, 
fun for people, so I made it a effectively a dream art school. And uh, you know, I don't know if it's coming up on the stream here because technology, but yeah, it's kind of getting another overlay, but whatever. That's that's the way it's going to work. That's the way it's going to work. But so, yeah, I mean, you don't want to just go and have a passive dream or be at the mercy of the wildness of your subconscious mind. You do want to get in the driver's seat eventually if you're going to engage it. Um, so a big part of it is learning how to bootstrap the dream when you close your eyes at night. And uh, we go through that naturally every night anyways, but becoming involved or participating in your own dreams. I mean, that's a real tough sell for people is, you know, you participate in your own dreams, you're having them. But a lot of people, because of culture and because of information haven't been taught, you know, I had a self-teach. The vast majority of what I did was self-teaching for it. Um, is like, well, let's take all of that information and all that experience condensed from 33 years of, uh, and plus I've done a lot of research into dream neuroscience and of course psychology, of course, all the different practices that are out there. Like, And uh, so I carefully constructed a course that's gonna help people actually stimulate the brain and get results with dreaming. That could be fun, you know, dream in whatever you want. And uh, it does work. I mean, we had 22 people run through the very first course and have had an interactive replay or incorporation of their source material where they thought they couldn't. And then, uh, so, you know, that's always kind of a nice thing when you see results, right? So uh, Dreaming for Gamers is all basically a result-orientated dream training system that rehabilitates stunted development in the in people or helps with development if they're before they become, say, 25, and it all goes to ruin after that. So, but there's that, nothing like it out there. Yeah, that's really cool. Now, you said, uh, how many students did you have right now? Well, we've had about 192 people start at the gate for the uh, free challenge. I have a free challenge up there. And uh, I've had uh, four students that have moved into the more advanced courses, you know, because I was charging for the first time in 22 years. And uh, the reason why is because I'm actually interacting with people and giving advice and stuff. So there's a lot of time commitment to it. Plus it's, like I say, 22 years of condensed research and knowledge that went into it. But um, that price tag, I think, is a... You know, everyone goes through the free course and it's like, nah, I don't want to pay for this. But, you know, I made it now the price of a video game for all four or all eight courses. So it's $89.99 for two months of dream training. And if you kind of know this whole field, you'll find that's an extraordinarily cheap price for people to uh, jump onto that practice. But I'm not really in it for the money, but I do have to. You know, I've invested a lot of money right. in my websites over those, you know, hosting it for 12 years with the other site about $40,000 software and servers and all that kind of stuff so i've never really recouped the costs so you know i decided well i don't get a free ride in life everyone's in my pocket right live, definitely so now i mean it's called dreaming for gamers but it's not just for for video gamers Do you, i mean you no. can create any type of reality Absolutely. you want right yeah and that's what they're finding the reason why i picked gaming is because i'm kind of biased to it i can i started um video games when they started becoming 3d i just noticed naturally adapt to dream replay because we think in a three-dimensional way and 3D games were there. So I was noticing the texturing and the environments were good to, I do something called cognitive mapping, which is something that I wrote about. Um, yeah, I don't know if it will, uh, if it, well, I guess we can, we can kind of pull it up. So it's somewhat working, <laughs> but yeah, I can kind of um, get into, so cognitive mapping is, you're doing it right now. You're just not really that aware of it. We're not very meta or aware of our senses and our, you know, that we're kind of floating autopilot a lot when we're going through our experiences rather than thinking, okay, I'm going to really focus on this experience for dreaming and for dream replay. So we get into mapping out a lot of the stuff that we do from the day to create a payload for the dream replay process. So it can be a video game, it can be a movie, it can be a TV show, 
uh, but it can also be a walk in the park. It can be a past memory. It can be a book or a novel. Uh, wouldn't be the best source material if it's not audible and visual, at least. And that's what the students are finding. If they start textual, um, they're not getting the stimulation. So I want them to have something that has a payload on it because when they close their eyes, and we do it just before bed, you know, you sort of close your eyes after reviewing your source material, mapping it out uh, with the stuff that we talk about. And then you go into memory play and start reviewing it when it becomes visual, just like when you're meditating and you start having thoughts. And that starts to kind of bootstrap the dream process. And uh, we call that sensory replay construction because it becomes visual, audible, even tactile before it becomes a dream. And then the last step is when your awareness can merge into the actual dream, into whatever dream avatar that you're looking at or yourself, you let the dream wrap around you. So. We get into bootstrapping the dream process that way, but it's developmental. So a lot of people, I'll see they'll start and uh, they might only get a little bit of a visual replay and then audible. And then as they, if they continue to practice, they finish vision, go, oh, wait, now I'm starting to get audible replay in the SRC. And you know, then all of a sudden, oh, I can actually now get some tactile feedback in the SRC because it's linked to the dreaming mind. It's a good way for me to gauge atrophy with people that are, um, you know, um, haven't been developing. So it really reflects first in the SRC and then next in the dream content. But it provides stimulation, you see. So now they're actively stimulating those regions of the brain while engaging the SRC. And then uh, they start finding out, wow, my dreams are getting better and better. Right. Now, for people that uh, just want to learn how to basically just start to remember their dreams again, what would be like one of the first or few steps to that process to just to be able to remember your dream? Well, again, like I said, it's an atrophic skills, like going to the gym. You can go into the gym one day and think you're going to get all these exceptional results. A lot of people go for this big payload when they take on, especially the dreaming practice, because they've got a lot of misleading information about, you know, do it in three easy steps, or, you know, you can do it in five seconds, or all this is still BS, because it's neurological, right? There's a lot of development that has to take place, like in any skill. Um, so with memory, it's really an issue of setting it up. So we do what's called a dream plan and a dream routine, and also having a dream workflow. You know, so we break it down just like a professional artist. You're going to go in and start working on what your intention is, what you want to use as your source material. I don't tell people what to use for a source material and um, they can have at it. Like some people have uh, never played games before. And so they end up picking stuff that was not say a violent video game, but a very scenic exploration game in a very beautiful oceanic world. For example, was one person picked, I think it was called into the blue or something like that. I haven't played the game myself, but it's all, you know, now there's dolphins and whales and, they're having awesome dreams where they're now, you know, in this aquatic adventures with all the things that they like, you know, and making their dreams fun. Like she says, this is the first time it's ever been fun. Like this is a real fun way to go about it. So as far as the source material goes, it can be anything, but, um, you know, you need that in the beginning if you haven't really engaged this practice because it's usually just a blank screen you're looking at and you're hoping something's going to happen. You know, people will sit there and just wait for something to happen. And sometimes you need to bootstrap that, give it a kick in the butt. So having um, a stimulated mind going into that, you'll find you'll get results quicker and I'm all about the results. So, you know, that's why I laid it out that way. No, I've had a guest on uh, that was giving uh, lucid dreaming techniques and he mentioned something like during the day, asking yourself if you're dreaming and doing some type of daytime test uh, to, yeah, uh, that's to kind the, of acclimate um, it. That's right. So that's now at least incorporating some training during the day, which is a little bit good because now you're actually are working with your awareness during the day and you're kind of setting an intention in the day. But also for the quote unquote reality check, which is, you know, um, it's a training wheel for sure, because a reality check doesn't necessarily become necessary when you start having um, a lot of stimulation where your prefrontal cortex starts to come back online as well, right? So you naturally now become aware 
and a good indication of that is when false awakening loops start to kick in a lot um, that awareness is starting to engage in the dreaming process but so for setting up um, intentions and reality checks during the day it's good for that um, but the problem is that you get kind of caught in the reality check trap because um, the other thing like my students were kind of catching on quickly was like well wait a second you know, they couldn't understand why the video game thing was a thing. And it was like, well, when you're in a dream, it's super realistic. Like most people, they think that it's reality until they wake up. They wouldn't even question it because it's so real, right? That's the way we dream. Um, but when you're suddenly now seeing, for example, I had a student that was using Fall Guys, which is this cartoon style game, and he wanted to test it out because he's never dreamt in cartoon. And uh, he had an incorporation where he's having a super real dream. He's at the beach, doesn't know he's dreaming. And all of a sudden, Fall Guy characters start running. It makes it very easy to kind of go, wait a second, this isn't reality. There shouldn't be these characters there. So, you know, they kind of caught on like, oh, I get it too. Now you're making it so the dream state becomes very easy to identify because it's not always presenting ultra realistic trance like super real experiences it's starting to give something for your logical mind to go wait a second this is uh, definitely a dream because it's so obviously not you know from your waking life and the way you're used to it so but we get into a lot i mean it's a very advanced system there's eight courses in that whole regimen and three courses are neurological which deal with memory awareness and perception and then we get into psychology, nightmares, overcoming nightmares, overcoming fear. We have a lot of what I call negative psychological inhibitors that get in the way of their dreaming practice. A lot of it's from our childhood, you know, stuff that's skeletons in the closet. So it deals with the house cleaning. That's, we all go through the house cleaning. I want to go through a couple of things that you mentioned. You mentioned false awakenings. I remember having those uh, growing up as well, where I'd, I'd dream that I'd be awake, I'd get up, I'd go mm -hmm. get something to eat, do a whole bunch of things, and then I wake up again, and I, it was just a dream. And this may have happened, you know, two or three times. Uh, what is, what's going on with that, and, and how is that an indicator that you're, you know, improving there? Well, you know, well, if you latch onto that, you'll improve with it because you're now engaging in that stimulation it's providing. But um, for a lot of people, the false awakening loop does happen when activity in the prefrontal cortex kicks in. That's where your sense of self-awareness is, you know, being processed. So you have that sense of self-awareness. Well, it's the same thing with the dream state. If we look at fMRI research between a lucid dreamer and a non-lucid dreamer, um, there's a way more activity in the brain. You know, there's activity all across the mind where information is being utilized to present the dream experience. It's processing data, right? So when you start having false awakening loops, it's a good indicator that aspects of your prefrontal cortex now is now engaging with you in that. And, you know, so you are aware, may not be fully aware um, because it's so clever and how the realism's there. And, um, but that's common when you start getting into like the other thing that I designed in this course is I'm very aware of three key things that a lot of the beginners don't quite understand when they jump into. They want to go to the very end, you know, I want to have that lucid dream right now. I've never had one before. Let's take an advanced technique, right? You know, for example, physical muscle relaxation, which is great. It's a great technique. Focus on a single point and off the body starts to fall asleep while you're telling it to. But during that process, it's going to release GABA and glycine, which um, block neural transmission to your muscles, invoking sleepers paralysis. Right, so a lot of beginners, because they don't know there's other methodologies to getting into that state without having to put your attention on your body, will go through super paralysis, and that scares them because um, because they're new at it. Very common for fear to invoke a fear replay, so they get the old hag, they get shadow people, they get goblins, whatever their belief systems might throw at them, uh, will play out in a sleeper paralysis for a beginner. Quite often, very common. We see that in a lot of literature throughout the years, and then false waking loop is another example of that. It's just. You know, you've fallen asleep, but you've now managed to bring a certain amount of your self-awareness into the dream, but not enough where you are familiar enough in the dream to recognize that that's what it is. So you'll go through that, oh, I'm just doing my 
brushing my teeth, going to school, and all of a sudden you get halfway to school and boop, you wake up and go, oh, I was just dreaming, and you repeat. So it's the false awakening loop, and then boop, you wake up again. But when you get into, again, the style of dreaming that I do here, your false awakening loops can be based in your source material. So you are waking up in a source material and you're like, wait a second, oh wait, but now in my source material, so the false awakening loop suddenly gets easily, you know, assessed as being a dream uh, because we're kind of changing the mechanic there to break that trance-like state. And the other thing is dream lock. And it's not a bad thing. These things aren't bad. Like I used to use sleep paralysis induction a lot for being self-aware during sleep. Um, I liked it because it got me results. But you know, by that time I had enough experience that there was no fear. There was no connection to fear in the dream state at all. I realized dreams were inconsequential. All the consequences were in waking life. Dreams you just wake up from, so nothing to worry about there. But uh, so dream walk is, for example, someone racing through the gate, they wanna have a lucid dream right away. They go through whatever practice they've jumped into, some advanced technique, the body falls asleep, the mind stays awake and the body goes deep sleep and they're stuck in a lucid dream. And, but now they don't know what they're doing. They have skeletons in the closet. They haven't done any house cleaning. And, you know, uh, it might be a scary dream for them. Or they're stuck there for a long period of time. They might be in there a lot longer than they thought they would be. And uh, so I try to do stuff to break away from invoking fear for a beginner. So we use SRC. And the reason why we're using that method is because your attention now is on the actual dream, not on the body. And it merges in with the dream content that you're looking at. You get into an active dream that you want. So you're less likely to be afraid. So it's not fear invoking. That aspect is fascinating to me, uh, especially the sleep paralysis. At one point in my life, I had that happen. I had the shadow figures that were uh, appearing. Uh, could you talk a little bit about more about what that is and you know how, how that's caused and you know, sure. getting over that? We all go through that. I mean, because when we become conscious in this state, you know, our subconscious mind is replaying information based on our feelings, our beliefs and things like that. So um, when I was going through super paralysis in this practice, I started encountering a lot of the things that like shadow people, of course, and, you know, I was raised up. So there was a lot of, um, you know, Christian beliefs in hell and the devil and all that kind of stuff. So I had one sleepers paralysis where, you know, I'm, you know, there's Satan and he's trying to be all this, you know, negative stuff. But by this point, I got so good at just recognizing the dreams that I just looked at the, you know, archetype that was there and I just went off. Well, you're just let's just deal with this and i just deconstructed it into basically hypnagogic information and threw it away and it never never bothered me again so i realized it was just an uh an artifact of localized belief that was now actualizing in fear replay all right so i study a lot of you know you read my course on overcoming fear and nightmares you'll understand that you know i've had to go through that too go through the you know the boogeyman in the closet and that kind of stuff but a lot of that can be based on our fears the the shadow people too is also in a perception thing that a lot of the times they're actually just dream characters and we're not perceiving them properly so they just look like shadow people you know and i've noticed that again early early on when i don't have it anymore but when i was younger yeah when i was noticing all this deficiencies in perception um one time yeah it was all i could see were shadow people and i started shifting my perception and all of a sudden they all became people and i could see what they looked like and i was like oh well this is just an issue of perception you know, I wasn't on the right frequency, maybe, or not, not parsing the information properly, but you get into those challenges back then. But once I started getting into working with dream fidelity, cleaning all that kind of stuff up, all that stuff just goes away, all the young and archetypes, you know, your teeth falling out, or you hear all that kind of stuff. That to me is the house cleaning. That's the, the early stuff with it. But uh, once it's gone, it's gone. No more reoccurring dreams, no more rumorations, no more nightmares. I don't think I've had a nightmare in over 
33 years. <laughs> yeah, I was talking to someone earlier, actually, on an earlier show that I was doing about how uh, shedding fear helps so much in our waking life. And now you're talking about how, you know, shedding fear can help in your dreaming life. I find that, you know, rather synchronistic that we we're talking about that That's earlier. Important. But yeah, yeah it, it seems to, to be one of the most important things really ever is to get rid of fear that, so that we can move forward in anything. Fear is the dream killer. Well, the problem with fear too, when you look at studying fear, unfortunately, you know, people say, well, dreams can't hurt you. Well, they're not exactly being honest because there is one particular series of dreams that can become quite complicated for people that are going through fear replay as a nightmare. The problem with it is dreams connect to our limbic system. So our body does release the same hormones that it releases during the day to create the fight or flight response, right? And so that's adrenaline and cortisol, which causes your heartbeat to rise, you're going to breathe heavier, your blood vessels constrict, and it can elevate. And if it elevates, we have the primus, which is a nerve cluster in the cerebellum that gets short circuited and causes that paralysis or that terror. So it can escalate to a night terror. Now, of course, in a dream, it's not real. So you don't need to have fight or flight, you're sleeping right? But because it seems so real that your body now is responding to it and going through fear replace. So, you know, people that have fears and then most of us can now rationalize through a fear. So we get spooked, our, you know, our prefrontal cortex kicks in and we start to rationalize. Is the threat real or is the, set, the threat false? You know, we go through that in our waking life. But um, a lot of it comes from our childhood. Unfortunately, kids can be exposed to a lot of things that are going to invoke fears. Well, Fear replay starts to, especially in a developing mind, form actual neural pathways for that. It starts to embed and it can become a phobia and those get a lot more hard to get rid of. And those phobias can also play out in the dream state as nightmares. And if it gets even really bad, but again, this is again, people who don't have fear management, right? Or don't work with fear management and they let the fear get the better of them. It can escalate to even things like mental health issues with like psychosis and things like that. Um, but again, that's the escalating factors. So when we get into resolving nightmares, it's not an issue of facing your nightmare while you're in a nightmare, that kind of a practice. It's about recognizing what the fears are while you're awake and working with releasing them because it's just embedded patterns of thought and emotion. And mostly it's the emotional charge behind it that gets the replay always happening. Uh, and then we work with what's called positive psychological enablers. So we start to try to break down what are your negative What's your negative self all about? Because we all have a shadow self. We all have the anti-self or the negative bias in us, our inner self-critic. And it's not a healthy thing either because that's the kind of part of, you know, where people can't look in the mirror anymore. They look in the mirror and they hate themselves. You know, there's, it lacks love. It lacks any empathy from themselves. So the negative part of us is really bad, the self-savaging part. And it, it reflects in the dream state as well. So what we do is we work on understanding that and working on positive, you know, psychological enablers so that we can now, if I say, well, I can't, you just kind of flip it to, I can, you start breaking down your own programming to get rid of the, the junk that's in the way. And yeah, of course, um, you know, one of the things that I look at in that is the wildness of our subconscious mind tends to be the wildness of our conscious life for some people. And I noticed that in engaging people that have drug addiction and homelessness and that kind of stuff that you really see where they're ruminating. And even while they're awake and talking to you, they get into loops, right? They get into all these thought loops that are derivative of things that they're not being able to release from or let go of and resolve. So yeah, that's pretty profound how we can get, get stuck in those loops. Let the uh, past be the past. Yeah. Earlier you were talking about how someone was actually kind of trapped in this dream state and how time is, is much different than, than we perceive it in, in our waking state. Mm -hmm. uh, how, you know, talk about that. How did, uh, how did that occur as someone uh, being trapped in a dream state for, for, for a long period sure. of time? 
Well, I mean, it's no brainer that we have perception of time. You know, there's uh, like we can be driving and our perception of time can cause a sense of dirty where it can speed up or slow down. You know, we don't notice time passing because time is again, emerges from information processing. It's, it's linked to how we're processing each frame of information as it's presenting itself and very fast, of course, but um, that creates our sense of time. Now we do know like with hypnosis, even meditation, even with dreaming and anethogen use that people can have a prolonged sense of time. So their, their sense of time can be longer than the duration of time physically seems to be taking place. And that is starting to get some better research on it. Like, I mean, they're linking it to GABA and also um, our hippocampus, which is especially for dreams is releasing the dream replay information, but it goes through oscillation frequencies so it can release more information or less information. And depending on how we're now in that information, it may give us a stronger sense of more time or less time, depending on how much information that we're now, if we're aware of it, now we're involved in it. And I noticed like with some of the dream uh, students that I've had go through where they all of a sudden notice dream information is going really fast, like it's like hyper speed. And um, that's probably because now they're starting to become more self-aware during non-REM or when the oscillation frequencies in the hippocampus are changing. So uh, I've experienced it. I mean, I've talked to a lot of people that have had, um, you know, you have a 30 minute nap and, but you feel like you dreamt for hours. I mean, Christopher Nolan played on that, right? But that's tying into at least what I can see as things with uh, the oscillation frequency in the hippocampus as it's releasing information for replay, as well as the effects of GABA. I mean, that's the, other, the only other thing. I mean, um, neuroscientists are looking at, I don't know if you ever came across an article where they wanted to get a drug that could make a prisoner feel like they were trapped in that prison for a thousand years because of taking a pill that will affect perception of time. So, I mean, they are, they are catching on to that is an actual real thing. I mean, you, I see it a lot in a lot of uh, articles that I read read. I mean, I don't use drugs. Uh, our, our stuff is entirely drug free. So we don't promote the use of anethogens or any drugs to stimulate dreaming. Um, I've never used drugs for my practice. I only had one encounter because of a friend a long time ago with magic mushrooms, you know, I wanted to say, well, hey, you're doing all this cool stuff with dreams. So you're going to have to get this. This is going to give you that kick. And all it did for me was it made my waking life a noisy dream. So I couldn't read and all the stuff I was trying to clean up was like now presenting because of the anethogen. I'm like, no, this is, this is going backwards for me. So, you know, a lot of people, because of a lot of, you know, Carlos Castaneda and the art of dreaming with the use of peyote and, <laughs> and stuff like that uh, created a whole movement of people that wanted to explore anethogenic dreaming, which is fine. You can still have a trippy dream uh, and get something out of it. But unfortunately, like Don Juan said, you didn't need the drugs. You can do it on your own. You don't need it. You know, birds don't need it. Mammals don't need it. But humans, well, we're funny. We will do all sorts of interesting shortcuts. But if you study shortcuts in life, steroids, well, there's long-term consequences with short-term gains in this world. So... You know, right. Make sure my students are aware of that. Definitely. Now, would you say that um, the uh, practice of remote viewing is linked to dreaming in any way? Well, again, you know, remote viewing is different. As you know, the U.S. military tumbled down that rabbit hole and uh, we had Ingo Swan. And of course, there was a lot of people that were involved with the men who stare at goats kind of branch of the U.S. military. Um, so remote viewing isn't done via dreaming. It's done while you're awake. So what a remote viewer will do, we'll sit down with a piece of paper and we'll be given a set of coordinates. And what they're now doing is try to feel and sense information um, that's anchored to that. And what they'll do is they usually work with a team of people that will then sit down and uh, work with that. Now there's different types of remote viewing, of course, because there's some that try to scry the future and see what's happening in the future. Like 
the dreams that might be linked to deja vus, but they're doing that while they're awake. It's a different type of practice altogether, all but it is an attention focusing, um, you know, using, you know, your awareness to try to get information um, that isn't being, but there's a lot of things that they do notice and they call it noise, you know, remote viewers uh, have to make sure that they're not just feeding off of their intellectual mind, feeding them, you know, assumptions and things like that. That's why they do it with more than one person in that practice. So, but uh, that's that other part of us that, you know, I do think we have consciousness and self-awareness that it resides in non-locality, you know, another way of looking at it. You know, it goes back to the idea of a conscious singularity, like the universe started off as a singularity and then what, you know, expanded into a multiverse. And we're all part of that. We're all interconnected with that process. That's why we're here today. You know, so I think that's, that's also uh, kind of connected to precognitive dreaming where you'll have a dream and then it happens in the future. Yeah. And again, the thing is like, you know, our understanding of time here is linear in the sense that that's how we move through our life in you start looking into things like probability distributions. Like, um, you know, I look at the future as a, we would say possibly the fifth dimensional probability distribution that there's not really a predeterministic, more like a choose your own adventure effect in our reality that we are moving through a probability distribution. And it's quite likely if our universe is information, then all we're doing is parsing data, like reading a book, you know, and that all time and all things are already there in this massive probability database uh, that represents everything, the entire universe. And we're just nodes of awareness in that, that are parsing experience from it, you know, very cool. Now, I thought for the last few minutes we have that you could give us some of examples of your uh, lucid dreaming ex experiences. Uh, maybe some of just the most profound one that you've had uh, recently or, or any of them at all that, that may give an example or a better idea of what this is about. Well, yeah, I mean, there's so, <laughs> so much. I'm talking to someone that does it quite regularly. I'm on the entertaining side of things. You know, I still work with source material and I have fun dreams. So, you know, I... Uh, to this day, I'll play certain video games like Fallout or Borderlands, or right now I was doing Star Wars Night of the Old Republic, and I was just having fun dream replay with that, lucid, self-aware in it, and just uh, acting, role-playing the way I do. You know, I do a lot of fun stuff with it. Um, other things with the, the lucid dreaming stuff, I mean, it can get into, you know, releasing anxieties and stresses. I mean, I'll build those up in life. So even I, too, have to do some house cleaning. So, you know, I'll find myself especially after something traumatic or like a relationship breakup, I go through a process of sorting all that out or someone passing away. My lucid dreams tend to present, you know, um, a way to work through the releasing of those kind of emotions that come from it. So I overcome grief a lot quicker. I'll overcome trauma a lot quicker. It helps me get rid of the past but, and it keeps it there, but it gets rid of the emotionality, the charge that's there in it. So, but I have a lot, I mean, we're talking, I mean, the vast amount, just like even on the weekend, it was nothing but, you know, like living in your own um, through the rabbit hole, Alice in Wonderland adventure slash <laughs> Dr. Parnarsis Imaginarium, right? Like when you get into it where you can do pretty much whatever you want, um, I'm into the story, the narrative, the role play, the time too, because I'm into cultivating time uh, with dreams. That's a big part of my motivator because everybody's going to, of course, die. We're all traveling at the speed of life. There's a sudden stop at the end. How do we get more time? Well, I found through being self-aware in a dream, I'm, well, I'm gaining time. People that don't engage in dreams, they actually, if they are amnesic dreamers, by the time they reach 80, will have slept away 25 years of potential experience. Now, if you take the atheist, atheist approach that we don't survive death, 
well, you're not getting those 25 years back, you know, of lost experience, right? And a lot of us are experienced junkies. You know, that's why people take the anthogenic route because it's working for them. They want that experience. A lot of us go to movie theaters because we want that experience, but Dreams from Years is just another vehicle of experience and self-expression. But I, I look at it as, you know, the ultimate form of art. You know, I come at it really as an artistic creative process. And, uh, you know, once you clean up all the garbage and start having really great dreams, you kind of don't want to stop. It's like, well, I've worked hard for this. So let's keep maintaining and having amazing dream experiences until, you know, that sudden stop. Yeah. So basically, you know, I mean, anyone, anyone can do this. Anyone can go to sleep and live any kind of adventure or, or, or lifestyle or the, the craziest, most amazing movie they've ever seen sure. and do this whenever they want just by practicing with this. Yeah. Well, of course, because like I said, if you're not again, stimulating your mind for it and like, you know, I've, I've had students that engage the memory training, they step away for a little bit and they come back and go, you know, I, you know, I was noticing, I was getting all these results and I was working with the dream plan, you know, and a dream routine. And then I, as soon as I stepped away, it's just all kind of like it went away. And I'm like, well, because first of all, you have atrophy, you know, atrophy isn't treated um, by starting any skill and then suddenly stopping. We all know that, you know, you, oh, I start playing the guitar this day and then, you know, you start making some progress while well, you stop playing the guitar. Oh, I'm too busy. I don't want to go back to my guitar. Weeks later, you get back and it just feels like you're starting over again, right? So it's like with any skill. So I tried to create a program that's going to get people to at least come back and keep stimulating and training. And some got a bit overwhelmed by it because they started training so much. But it's like, like anything, you've got to find a pace with it where you're not letting it go too far that the atrophy creeps back in, but you're going with enough training that you're resolving the atrophy. So you're seeing the results. Cause I like going to the gym where we see our body get healthy and strong. You can only measure it by the results of the actual dream content and in the dream experience. And so it becomes just self-evident that, Hey, this work that I'm doing here is producing this result here in my dream state. So, you know, I, you know, my students all say, get what you put into your dream experience like you do with any skill in life, but it is trainable. Um, the key is participation, like learning how to actually just participate in those three to five dreams. But fortunately, depending on what age we are, it gets harder as we get older. I've had students in the 60 plus category. Um, they've had to run the memory course twice, but they ran it twice because they saw results, you know, but people that haven't maybe dreamt in 10 years or 20 years uh, may find it a lot harder than somebody who's dreamt only once a week, right? Because we still have a foundation. We've all been dreaming since we we're kids. And like you say, suddenly this little gift goes away. But the framework for dreaming is always there. It's just the part where it comes to us, our self-awareness, who we identify ourselves with, isn't getting that information. It's all in a state of amnesia. So it's overcoming that in that practice and gaining results. So yeah, everything we do is um, training and you know, the, the students that have advanced, I mean, I've had one student where they can work with any source material and then have a dream with it the next, that night. And me, it takes me, sometimes I can, but I work with source material for like a week before I start getting what I call really good results with it. But then, you know, I can be in that source material type dream and go, this is wrong, this is wrong, that's wrong. And I'll go back to the source material and I'll work on the information and then I'll find that oh, now it's being correct because the subconscious mind's inventive. You know, if it doesn't have data, it likes to invent it. And your dreams will be a good example of seeing that if you don't have the information that's there for the uh, replay. So I collect data during the day, experiences during the day as paint for my dreams. That's awesome. And I do have a question that I almost forgot to ask you from one of my friends. They, they want to know that they're, they're having a lot of uh, recurring nightmares. Mm -hmm. They want to know if there's an easy way to turn a nightmare into a good dream or just get yeah. rid of it altogether. I mean, like anything, these, these are pretty much, again, it can stem from a trauma or 
fear, you know, uh, that's usually from our childhood, so it's kind of got a bit embedded. Um, reoccurring dreams are a good example of that. Well, what we do with that is when you start getting into active dreaming, um, a lot of the times your mind doesn't have time to replay that nightmare because you're too busy doing something else. So you're already diverting your attention away from it. Um, but like, I, you know, with some of the students that we've had come through it, for example, one was getting into that nightmare environment. And uh, because now they have some training, they have some skill, you know, they um, were going through that and then went, wait a second, no, I'm just gonna change it. And right there in the dream, boom. Because what happens is when you start to think, now that you have self-awareness, you can make choice, the hippocampus is now gonna say, well, oh, this memory packet needs to come out. This is what, you know, you, the occupant of your experience is saying, yeah, no, I wanna play this. And it will change and morph right in front of you in the dream state and become that, right? And it just, you know, that's now you're working with your dreaming mind and not letting it be in the wellness of your subconscious. But it is a skill. It takes some time to get that. We had another student, I mean, he was quite happy because now, you know, we all have our little bit of skeletons in the closet from our dream state, having nightmarish elements that need to be released. And so he was quite happy that you got to beat up the dream characters that were giving the nightmare. He went all Neo in the Matrix. And uh, I find that's quite often the case. Like a lot of the ones uh, that get now self-aware, they just like, it's like you become Neo in your own Matrix, in the Matrix of the mind. Man, that is really cool. Now, before you head out, let everyone know uh, if they're interested out in finding more about this. It's uh, dreamingforgamers.com and anywhere else they can find uh, your work or anything else you're working on. Yeah, so that's the start of the rabbit hole. If you, know, if you had a dream come true and you want to dig into that, you can go to youardreaming.org. I have information on that there. But I mean, for like I said, most people, um, you know, the sooner you start with dream training, the sooner you start addressing atrophy and the sooner you can get your dreaming mind back online like one student ran through two weeks worth of training and in 14 days accomplished what took me two years to do that's the difference when you have information that comes from experience versus you know not so they were they now they're just awesome like, i mean I, I love what that person is now able to do with their dream experience and you know it's not like you have to stick around forever a lot of times people will encounter my work get what they need from it and then they're gone and uh, off on the off on their own doing their own because my, my whole thing with the dream practice is it's all about you and your dreams, your relationship with your dreams. And so I don't teach people or tell people what to dream. I just give them skills. And it's, I always emphasize, you know, this is your dream experience. You're the dream artist. What are you going to paint? So I don't say, you know, dream what I dream. You're never going to do that. I can't dream your dream for you. You can't dream my dream for me, but I can definitely provide the skill set to improve your, you know, uh, knowledge and practice in that in a way that's very, result orientated but it takes oh, yeah. time i won't lie and say oh yeah you're just going to do it it's going to be easy there's a lot of people that lie about it and just try to get you know we call it clickbait and stuff like that but i don't i mean i know the skill i know people like myself that train very hard at it and uh, we all know we got there from practice and work and dedication to participating in that process yeah it man this is such so cool stuff uh, uh who wouldn't want to you know be able to control their own dreams and and live in an alternate reality so uh, i encourage everyone please go check out those websites i'll have those links in the description and ian thank you so much for joining us tonight we'll have you back on we'll go deeper down the rabbit hole next time yeah i mean there's a lot of fun things we can talk about because again when you start engaging what you are self-awareness and consciousness and you start going beyond the constraints of this interface and find out hey you're just focus states focusing on different parts of yourself. There's a lot more to you than right here. Yeah, man. Fascinating stuff. All right, Ian. Well, thank you again. You have a good night until uh, next time, everyone. Have a great night. Thanks so much, Chris.